Hello and welcome to the Treehouse Letter, where we are always learning with a bit of fun. I am Yulin Shatton, your host and producer. And today's podcast is titled Sex Over 70 and the Synecdity. I'll say that again, Sex Over 70 and the Synecdity. And that is spelled S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E. Today's letter includes explicit content, two books, two rhetorical devices, and the music and prose. The music and prose is a treehouse letter regular feature focused on writing that sings and why. It's a double entendre, this letter's headline, but it's fitting. I'm not well informed about sex over 70, though I hope to find out if I get there. (laughs) The double entendre is part of the writer's and the comedian's toolbox. And here's one from Zsa Zsa Gabor. A man in love is incomplete until he's married. And then he's finished. (laughs) The sex in this letter has to do with the writing, the language of sex, and how it changed over 70 years. Apologies to the 70-somethings who may be listening, but there is no shortage of that type of counsel online. Google at will. What you have in this letter are samples of the language used by Gustave Flaubert and D.H. Lawrence. Flaubert's Madame Bovary landed him in court for obscenity, and it was first serialized in 1856. He was acquitted, and the book went into print the next year. D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover first went into print in Italy in 1928, then in France the following year, and not in England, until 1932. This is a 72-year difference between the publication of the books, Madame Bovary and Lady Chatterley's Lover. The Brits did not see fit to lift the ban on the uncensored version of Lady Chatterley's Lover until 1960, categorizing it as pornography. Lawrence's language is explicit. Flaubert for the Times, 1856, was implicit but suggestive enough that he was taken to task. (laughs) Madame Bovary is considered one of the first novels of literary realism and depicted rural life and characters in an authentic way. I read Lydia Davis's masterful 2010 translation from the French, and she herself is a notable writer. And if you know the author's language for any work, read it in the original. All else is merely an attempt, and I'm lucky enough to read the Davis translation. Flaubert's characters in the routine of a provincial country doctor, Charles Bovary, and his dreamy wife, Emma, given to reading novels and romance, rise off the page. The striving apothecary, the scheming merchant, the innkeeper and her knowledge of the tavern's guests remind me of Dickens. The couple are in likely pair, But Charles has means enough to secure her hand in marriage, and he's doting and docile, and for this reader, dumb. Not speechless, though he's often that, but the willing fool. Such traits are in his character, which Flaubert outlines in the opening chapter. The language about sex is not graphic, but implied. Emma has her first affair with a dashing patient of her husband's. She dreams of a love like the love she reads about, and surely 
Rodolfo fits the bill. He sees her as a tempting morsel in a delectable feast of femme fatales, a collection of letters patting his desk like notches on the belt. When they plan to run away, he asks about her daughter, an afterthought to her and an obstacle he hopes will deter her. Yet she clings to Rodolphe, and he, the rogue that the reader knows him to be, begs off in a letter sent by his servant and then skips town. Flaubert describes his reaction to her professions. All right, this is a passage um, from Flaubert. He had heard these things said to him so often that for him there was nothing original about them. Emma was like all other mistresses, and the charm of novelty slipping off gradually like a piece of clothing revealed in its nakedness the eternal monotony of passion, which always assumes the same forms and uses the same language. He could not perceive this man of such broad experience, the difference in feeling that might underlie the similarities of expression. Because licentious or venal lips had murmured the same words to him, he had little faith in their truthfulness. One had to discount, he thought, exaggerated speeches that concealed commonplace affections, as if the fullness of the soul did not sometimes overflow in the emptiest of metaphors. Since none of us can ever express the exact measure of our needs or our ideas or our sorrows, and human speech is like a cracked kettle in which we beat out tunes for bears to dance to when we, when we long to inspire pity in the stars. Now remember, that's, that is Lydia Davis's translation. So where's the music in the prose? This page is marked and tabbed in my copy. Human speech is like a cracked kettle. Because language has its limits. The limits of speech are the limits of our world. And the cad <laughs> is incapable of understanding the subtleties and shades of feeling in his lovers and his interest in any depth in a more human connection, like the shallow creature that he is, slips away like the clothes. The rhythm or the cadence in this passage, even the translation bursts with meaning and emotion, with tension and apt similes. Word for word with semicolon and M dash, commas and full stops, there's this breathlessness and desperation of Emma's plea, an eternal monotony of passion, and it chills the reader 150 years later. Bravo, Flaubert, and bravo, Davis for her exquisite rendition of the notably fastidious author. Sex with her second lover, the young legal clerk, Leon, takes place in the infamous literary scene in Rouen in a carriage ride. She has recovered from her heartbreak with Rodolphe and worn the habit of a good wife and churchgoer. Yet they rekindle a flirtation and Leon has lived in the world a bit now. She writes him a letter to hold him off, yet they meet at the church late morning, and when they finally find each other, he summons a cab, or back then it's a carriage with horses. So he summons a cab for them. It's quite improper, you know. In what way, replied the clerk. They do it in Paris. <laughs> so she's falling again. Where does Monsieur wish to go, asked the coachman. 
Wherever you like, said Leon, thrusting Emma into the carriage. And the heavy vehicle started off. It went down the Rue Grand Pont, crossed the Place des Arts, the Quai Napoleon and the Pont Neuf, and stopped short in front of the statue of Pierre Corniel. Keep going, said a voice issuing from the interior. A hand appears out of the blinds at midday to toss off torn scraps of paper, which scattered in the wind and alighted at a distance, like white butterflies on a field of red clover, all in bloom. So the cab is one of literature's most notable synecdoches, or a representation of an item for one for another. So the cab represents sex. It was enough to put Flaubert in court. <laughs> and here's another passage. The townspeople would stare wide in amazement at this thing so unheard of in the provinces, a carriage with drawn blinds that kept appearing and reappearing, sealed tighter than a tomb and tossed about like a ship at sea. <laughs> now Lawrence's language makes Flaubert seem sedate, <laughs> but the Victorian age is over. It's been 72 years. So Lady Chatterley, or Connie, which is short for Constance, ironic choice for her name, <laughs> is the sexual, worldly, and culturally bohemian spouse of Clifford Chatterley. He comes back from the war in 1918. He is paralyzed and impotent. Clifford and Connie. He's a man of the mind, and he becomes consumed in his business. She wants more than a companion and discovers that the central part of a relationship is an essential and vital force. She is drawn to the woods and nature to fill the void and finds sex and love with her husband's gamekeeper, Melors, a former soldier living estranged from his wife. Lawrence writes the character of Melors using his local accent, and it's, it's kind of hard to digest, so it's going to be an attempt to, to share this with you. Um, he had become an officer in the army, and he could speak well enough in company, but he preferred to revert to his dialect, which works pretty well for the topic of his erection. All right, here we go. <laughs> this is the passage from D.H. Lawrence. The man looked down in silence at the tense phallus that did not change. Aye, he said at last in a little voice. Aye, my lad, that dear right enough. Ye the mun, rear thy head. They're on thy own, eh? And tis no count, a nobody, that mice now to me, John Thomas, art boss of me. Eh, well, they're more cocky than me. And thou says less, John Thomas, dost want her, dost want my Lady Jane, thus dipped me in again, thou hast. Ah, and thou comes up smiling. Axe her then. Axe, Lady Jane. Say, lift up your heads, O ye gates, that the king of glory may come in. Aye, the cheek of the cunt that what's thereafter. Tell Lady Jane thy once cunt, John Thomas, and the cunt of Lady Jane. <laughs> oh, don't tease him, said Connie, crawling on her knees on the bed towards him, putting her arms around his white slender loins and drawing him to her so that her hanging, swinging breasts touched the tip of the stirring, erect phallus and caught the drop of moisture. She held the man fast. Lie down, he said. Lie down, let me come. He was in a hurry now. And afterwards, when they had been quite still, 
the woman had to uncover the man again to look at the mystery of the phallus. And now he's tiny and soft like a little bud of life, she said, taking the soft, small penis in her hand. Isn't he somehow lovely? So on his own, so strange and so innocent, and he comes so far into me. You must never insult him, you know. He's mine, too. He's not only yours. He's mine, and so lovely and innocent. And she held the penis soft in her hand. He laughed. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in kindred love, he said. Chapter 14 of Lady Chatterley's Lover. <laughs> this passage, among many others, and its words were likely what the Brit censored until 1960, to read about the tense phallus, the erect phallus, at the tidy, soft, little butt of life in this book, sex is not tawdry, it is natural and beautiful. It's the progress of a man's physical love. And Connie is charmed. The passage shows an intimacy that went beyond the physical, connected as the lovers were in body and soul. Malors finds such physical and spiritual love inseparable, a love that had eluded him in his marriage. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in kindred love, he says to her. Now, is there music in Lawrence's passage? Yes, of a sort. And you can make a strong argument for it, especially the colorful language he employs for Malore's description of his erection. The frank dialect of his root, roots, roots in the coal mining uh, town, his childhood and profession as a blacksmith before he had left the town and his life. Connie speaks English well enough and proclaims the soft small penis as somehow lovely, strange, innocent, and he's mine too. <laughs> writing on sex over 70 years. Flaubert's writing about sex and Lawrence's writing about sex may be apt for the times, or not. Flaubert was pushing the envelope of realism, and Lawrence wrote as he believed love to be. Madame Bovary transformed the novel. So the authenticity was pushing beyond the norms in the mid-1800s. Lawrence showed me that John Thomas and Kunt and numerous words stashed away in huts of propriety have roots in a longer oral tradition. Sex and love in all its forms have been around for centuries, millennia. The filters of society have a way of warping and twisting the view it has on its perch at any period. But thanks to Flaubert and Lawrence, readers may enjoy the ecstasies and sorrow, the passions and the pains, wreaked on the lover and the beloved over generations. Now on my site, I have footnotes, which I call the Easter egg of the treehouse letter. And I define these rhetorical devices, the double entendre, the synecdoche. Um, I have a few other interesting things and advice for the writer from my friend and mentor, Pinkney Benedict, a article links to a wicked cab ride and links to the free text um, on the Gutenberg project for Lady Chatterley's Lover and uh, other information. So that's the end of today's podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, feel free to share and uh, please visit my site at treehouseletter.com to read the passages, get links to the text and articles, see the Easter egg of footnotes and sign up for the letter. And as always, thank you for listening.